0: I don't think I have to do too much convincing to make this assertion that suffering is part of the human experience. And suffering, when we meet it, is always, and without a shadow of a doubt, disorienting. And when something is disorienting, we often react, we often respond, not with Righteousness, not with godliness, but but out of the recesses of our sinful disposition. And here's the reality of the matter. Oftentimes when we meet suffering, we can start blaming God. We can start thinking that the entire world system, so to speak, is out to get us. That everything is the devil's fault if it's not God's fault. And and it throws us and thrusts us into some sort of despair. You've seen even this reality play out in the lives of non-Christians. How many people in this room have witnessed non-Christians who suffer and continually and constantly become more and more bitter? But every once in a while, the veil is pulled back and you meet an elderly saint who has seen affliction, who has tasted, as the Puritans would say, the furnace of affliction, and he radiates and oozes generosity, optimism, and so on. My goal here today in this sermon is not to convince you that suffering is real. It's not to show you how to look back on your suffering and say, well, God was at work in that, but rather how to honor and glorify God in and amidst your suffering, thus producing in you the type of heart That actually God was trying to produce in that suffering in the first place. Because here's the deal. Samuel Rutherford, a Puritan, once said, I am hanging by a string, by a thread. But the spinning of that thread is the Lord Jesus. So the reality is we can trust him. And it's all about him. When we meet suffering, when we meet trials, when we are thrust into the furnace of affliction, I don't want you to do anything. The Bible doesn't want you to do anything. Here's what I mean by that. There is no action steps that the Bible gives you to walk through suffering. There is no 12-step program that's going to help you in your day of trouble. But what will help you, and what we are going to get at today, is considering the treasures hidden in Christ. The beauties hidden in Christ. The love hidden in Christ. And so today, I want us to think through, if we are going to suffer, and we will, How do we suffer as a Christian? Not how do we suffer well, though we want to, but how do we suffer as a Christian? Because suffering like a Christian looks different because the pain that the Lord bestows upon us is given for a very distinct purpose, and we will see that. So as we look at our text, I want you to see that what's happening is that, likely, Paul is speaking to a group of Hebrews who have found themselves in quite a hard situation. They are being persecuted. They are being hated. People are getting sick. People are dying. The disease is run amok. There is some ambiguity about how they ought to worship, even, because... They used to worship in a temple. and They used to worship Yahweh in a very specific way. And Jesus comes and he fulfills all of the Old Testament uh, laws and, and, and worship and all of these sorts of things. And, and, and he has come to tear the temple, as he says in his gospels, down. And he will rise it up on the third day, pointing to his resurrection. And yet there's still at this point in time a temple standing and Jewish people who are saying, hey... That's not how you worship God. So they're beaten, they're broken, they're persecuted, and they're confused. And here the writer leans in. He leans in and he tells them, based upon this reality, based upon the predicament that you are in, maybe one of the hardest Positions that a Christian can be in, consider firstly the saints of old and how they viewed the Christ. Secondarily, consider the author and perfecter of our faith who is the Christ. And thirdly, consider God's providential purpose in suffering for Christ. If you take notes, let me say that again. But a little quicker. Consider the saints of God. Consider the author and perfecter of faith and consider God's providential purpose in suffering. And so if you would, please turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and stand with me for the honoring and reading of God's holy, infallible, and all-sufficient word. Amen? We will be reading the first 14 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, For Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord." nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification or depending on your translation, holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Will you have a seat and pray with me? Father God, we come before you as we so often do, recognizing that we live in a sin-marred world and we walk about with a sin-marred heart and we need your direction. We need reminded of who you are that we might be strengthened in the day of trouble. We we need the power and presence of your spirit to convict us of sin and to propel us into a life of godliness and to comfort us when we need mercy, to comfort us when we need love, to comfort us when we are in the throes of a life's travails. And Lord, we ask that in this moment that you would descend upon us, that you would give us illumination of your scriptures, your holy word. Not so that we could be puffed up, not so that we could have big heads, not so that we could say that we know more than the next guy or a brother or a sister sitting next to us, but so that we might cling ever closer to you. Lord, grant us these things this day. It is for your glory And for the fame of your son Jesus. That I stand here in this pulpit. So I ask that you would enable me to preach Christ. In a way. That would cause these people in this room. To stand strong and to stand firm. In the day of trouble. We ask all of these. In Jesus name. His matchless and meritorious name. Amen. All right. So here's the deal. Verse one starts off with a therefore. And every time we see a therefore, we need to ask, why is it there for? So what happened so what's happening here is a continuation of a thought that's been carried along throughout the book of Hebrews, but primarily chapter 11, chapter 11 is a very famous chapter in the Bible, right? Chapter 11 talks all about, we'll call it the Hall of Fame of God's saints. If you read the Bible, which by the way, this is kind of a apologetic for why you need to know your Bible in some sense as well. Because if you don't understand your Old Testament, this is a prime example of how you'll never understand the New Testament. Because it says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, who are these cloud of witnesses? Well, if we go back to chapter 11, it's Abel, it's Enoch, it's Noah, it's Abraham, right? It's Jacob. The question is, what did they do? And how are we surrounded by them? Well, that brings me to my first point. We need to, if we're going to stand strong in the day of trouble, if we are going to face suffering as we ought, we need to consider, not do, but consider, to think, and, and even, to some degree, to feel what these saints of old have done. Well, here's what they've done. They had faith in the living and true God. They, they had faith that he would bring about the Messiah who would wipe away all of their sin and all of their tears and make everything right that, as Sam Beckett once said, once went wrong. If you don't get that reference, I can't help you. Here's the deal. By faith, these men gained their approval. They didn't gain their approval by men. They gained their approval by God because when they stood in the midst of God's fiery furnace, they didn't trust themselves to get them out of the mess. They didn't trust a 12-step program. They trusted God. And they did amazing things. They did amazing things. I won't go into all the details of every single thing that they did. I want you to go home and I want you to read your Old Testament. Because even the author here assumes that you know what he's talking about. He doesn't give huge biographical sketches. But he says here that even he could speak of more than he has in verse 32 of chapter 11. He says, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jathath, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed act of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, and put armies to flight. Here's the point that I believe Paul is making here. If you want to get through suffering, consider That other people suffered long before you showed up. And they persevered and God did amazing things through them. He did amazing things though they suffered. David, as a prime example of who he speaks of, David both suffered greatly and caused other people to suffer greatly. But one thing he never did was stop believing that God can, God does, and God will. Never. And God has written a story about David that, although humble, causes us to stand in awe. And if God did it for them, he can do it for us. However, the passage goes on. Most people and most churches would stop there. And that would be very encouraging. And for some of us, that's true. For some of us, God is going to use us in mighty ways. At least from an earthly perspective. He's going to cause names to be written down in history books. He's going to cause legacies to live on that speak of his greatness and his power and others of us. He's going to crush us to powder. And I believe this text is telling us that that's better. (laughs) Let me continue on. Look at these men. Look at this cloud of witnesses. We have all these great stories of all these men who did all these crazy things by faith in the Lord Jesus to come. And then there's a different kind of faith. Actually, it's the same kind of faith, but it enables you to endure differently. Did you know that it's hard to create kingdoms, to put foreign armies to flight? It's hard. But you know what else is hard? This. 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they may obtain what? A better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourging. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. God's people suffered. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. And you might be thinking, why did you just say that it was better to suffer like that? Well, keep reading. 38. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Their faith was so strong Their love for Jesus was so amazing. When they met the fiery furnace of God's providentially extended affliction, they stood their ground, and the Bible calls these men, you are unworthy to be in their presence. Because they got it, man. They got it. wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Here's how you understand this passage. These men and these women suffered greatly to the point of even death being sawn in two looking to their reward. Early on in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that God is the rewarder of those who seek Him. But they did so on the other side of the cross. How much more should we then be able to stand in the day of adversity knowing what the cross has accomplished for us? Which brings me to the second point, which is to consider the author and perfecter of our faith. That is how we get through this. Now, what I'm not saying, I want to make this clear before we move straight into the next point. What I'm not saying is that considering the saints in their life is what we need to emulate. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we need to consider how they thought about the way that they suffered and see Christ through that. That's what I'm saying. Because they saw Christ that way that it enabled them to suffer. And then we need to do the same thing. And we do that primarily by considering the author and perfecter of our faith. Verses 3 and 4. or uh, Verses 2 and 3 rather, I'm sorry. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The primary way that we get through suffering is by fixing our eyes on Jesus with loving and longing looks. We love him, we want him, we need him, and we cannot wait to see him this is why Paul says in Galatians 2 20 for to live is Christ and to die is gain if I'm living I'm showing Jesus off I'm walking with Jesus I'm loving Jesus albeit not directly in front of him but if I die all right I get to see him and it'll become more real to me and it is real right now. And it's very real right now. He even goes on to say, I don't know what I would choose. If, if God was to come to me and say, hey, do you want to keep living or do you want to die? Do you want to come see me? You want to come home? Paul says, I, I'd be hard pressed to answer that question. Because I want to go home. I want to see Jesus. But he says, I'm tempted to say I would stay here because I know that I need to help you understand how great Jesus is. I'm here for you. It's all about Jesus. And it will always be about Jesus. So we need to consider him. And when I mean consider, I mean meditate on, contemplate, think. When you decide, hey, I'm going to look down at my phone, maybe just don't do that and contemplate who Jesus is. And rid your life of everything that diverts your attention and discourages you, discourages you on the way to the furnace. I was reading a story uh, just yesterday while I was in the hospital, and um, it's, it's by John Flavel. It's called um, The Fountain of Life Meditations on the Meditorial Glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, they have many different types of copies with different type of abridged versions if you don't want to read, you know, the giant tome that it is. But I would encourage you to check it out. And one of the things he was saying was, he was talking to a woman about a wedding that he had seen, that he had been a part of. And he asked a woman that he knew that was in kind of the seats and said, oh, did you see the bridegroom? Did you see the bridegroom? Did you see what was going on there? And and her reply was, absolutely not. I didn't see that. (laughs) The only one in that room was my husband. Friends, the only one in our room is the heavenly husband. Our gaze ought to be focused on Him. Everything else is a distraction. Now, what am I, I'm not saying that we just totally disregard life. But Jesus is the aim and the treasure of our eye. He's the only way we can interact with anybody with any sorts of Christian ethics. He's the only one who helps us in our day of trial. He's the only one that helps us know how to love. Right? Right? as Pastor Darren is walking through the marriage part of Ephesians, it tells you to love husbands, your wife, as Christ loved the church. That's assuming a couple things. One, Jesus ought to be thought about in relationship to how you treat your wife. He's ultimate priority. Two, you don't know how to love. Christ is the balm for every self-inflicted wound and every wound that was inflicted upon you by others. That's the reality of the situation. We must have a singular gaze on the heavenly husband. If that weirds you out, men, it's okay. The Bible talks about these things as metaphors. And we do well to listen to them. I want to help you. I want to help you gaze upon your Savior. And so, I'm going to step outside of this text for just a moment, and we're going to think about how we can actually consider Christ in a myriad of different ways. Firstly, considering, uh, consider rather the sufferings of Christ. Actually, that's from this text right here. This is the point that it's trying to make. When you are in affliction, when you are suffering, consider the sufferings of Christ. Friends, Christ suffered brutally. If you think you've had a bad day, look to Christ. To Christ. He was brutally beaten and brutally broken on your behalf. He was betrayed by his best friends. He was hung on a cross, mocked. People spat on him, laughed at him as he sat there dying, gasping for air. Oh, but that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that he suffered the wrath of God. And he did it, not because he deserved it, but because we are, as people, sinful. And we'd rather kill the Lord of life than to let him apply his balm to our self-inflicted wounds. Ouch. Ouch more than that he suffered for you he suffered for you not many of us are willing to suffer for other people we don't even like suffering for ourselves oh but when we look at Christ friends when we when we look at Christ when we look at who he is when we are mesmerized by him and his suffering we can then walk and we can suffer knowing that my savior has been here before me and he's got on the other side do you consider Christ In his sufferings. Secondly, consider Christ's power. Consider Christ's power in you. I bring this idea from the book of Ephesians. Do you remember? It talks about how the power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is Christ's power. And that power is the power that now lives in the Christian But not just that, that he is majestic, holy, big, awe-inspiring, that he is, and the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he created the worlds, everything was created for him, through him, and in him. He parted the seas in the Old Testament for the Israelites to cross. Jude makes this argument. He carries the weak. So what does suffering do and why should we do that? Suffering then produces dependence upon God. When you think about Christ's power, you think about your weakness and you are reminded that you can't do this on your own. Because here's the reality, friends. God needs to break a man or a woman if he is going to use him. For his glory. He wants broken vessels. He wants to pick the last guy at the dodgeball tournament. Why? It produces dependence in his people, in his sheep. Uh, but what else does it do? It shows off his glory. It shows off His love. It shows off His mercy. It shows off His godness. Oh, if you're going to suffer well, you need dependence. Suffering, actually, as J.I. Packer has said, is literally brought into the believer's life so that the grip that we have upon the world would be broken that one by one the fingers that we have around the things that we love here that are temporal can be let go so that we can receive the eternal namely the heavenly husband three when you are suffering consider the presence of Christ consider the presence of Christ. There is not a single time when Christ is absent. He is always walking with you. As a matter of fact, this got me into trouble before when I've said this, but I'll say it again. Because it's true. There's a famous Baptist picture, and it's in a lot of Baptist uh, pastors' church offices. I don't think it's in Darren, so I don't think I'm going to hear about this later. But you've seen it, especially if you've been a, ba- a Baptist for a while. It's got, like, it's it's got this ocean, oceanic like, scene, right? There's some sand. There's some footprints, right? There's two sets of footprints. And they're walking on the beach. And then at some point in the picture, one of these footprints uh, disappears, right? And I think the caption says something to the effect of... Uh, at some point, Jesus starts carrying you. Do, do you notice that he's not carrying? Here's the deal. Here's why that's stupid. Uh, Jesus is always carrying you, always. He's never too far from you. He will be with you today. He was with you yesterday. He'll be with you tomorrow. He is ever present, and He's ever present through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that it is better that He goes away so that He could send His Spirit to indwell His people. Uh, We need a little bit more Holy Spirit loving in the world. It is the very Spirit of Christ. He's present in His Word. He's present in us. He is for us. And He walks with us. Consider the presence of Christ. Hebrews makes the case that He exists. He lives to make intercession for His people. Do you know that you don't know how to pray? I'm not throwing stones. I don't know how to pray either. But I cry out to the Lord. And Jesus doctors those prayers up. And he gives them to the Father. This is why we're not Roman. This is one of the reasons that we're not Roman Catholic. He, we have one mediator between God and man. And that is who? The Lord Christ Jesus. The presence of Christ. He is with you in the ups and he is with you in the downs. Number four, consider the perseverance of Christ. He went, and that's the point here in Hebrews chapter 12, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Friends, here's the thing. A lot of people take this text and they will say, uh, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And they will say, look, he resisted sin. Because it says that in verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. But what sin is it talking about in Hebrews chapter 12? It's not Jesus' sin. Right? It's the sin of others against him. You think you've had it bad? Um, Jesus was killed. You're still standing. He was sinned against. And he stood his ground. As Paul Washer has said, this broad-chested Savior, endured what none of us could endure. But he pushed through. He persevered. He got to the other side. That is why he is a great high priest and a great shepherd. Pastor Darren and I love you. And we will walk with you through absolutely anything. You can call us at any time. We are as available as we can be. But we can't take you as far as Jesus can. We're in the trenches with you. He's won the war. Amen. All right. So consider the uh, the perseverance of Christ. I'm going to run through these last three pretty quickly. Number five, consider the prayers of Christ. Do you know Christ prays for you? He doesn't just mediate your prayers, but he prays for you. He prayed in the gospels for us. Go look for them. He prays that we would be one. He prays that we would see His glory. He prays that we would endure suffering as good soldiers. This is the reality of who Jesus is. He works for us. He prays for us. He's for us. Consider his prayers. That will help you pray through your suffering. Don't stop praying. Paul says pray without ceasing. The reason we can pray without ceasing is because we know our Savior prays for us. Six, consider Christ's communion with His saints. Not only is He with us, He longs to be there. He longs for us to commune with Him, to be with Him, to spend time with Him in His Word, in our prayer closets. Or your kitchen table. I'm not trying to be too holy here, right? Not everybody, there's no such thing as a prayer closet anymore, really. There should be, there's not. When we come to the table here in just a little bit, the Lord Jesus longs to communion with you. That's why we call it communion. That's why we believe here, as the 1689 teaches, That it's not just a remembrance, but a spiritual nourishment of our soul. This is why we do not want non-Christians to take the table. And number seven, consider Christ's eternal plan. The world and all that it contains is for Christ. And it's bigger than you. And it's bigger than me, it's bigger than Harmony Baptist Church, it's bigger than Frankfurt, it's bigger than Indiana, it's bigger than America, it's bigger than the world. Christ has caused you to have life so that He may bring about the reconciliation of the world to Himself. Christ purchased this, Christ is performing this, and Christ is standing over it as King, as Savior, and he will bring the new Jerusalem down to bear upon the world. And you, listen to the guys, listen. Your suffering, your affliction is a cog. In God's will, in God's, um, I'm trying to think how to say this. Your suffering is a cog in the wheel of God's redemptive plan to save the world. I don't, that's hard to wrap your mind around. but it's true. It is very, very true. And in closing, I'm going to cover the next 14 verses. (laughs) Consider then, after we have considered the saints of old, after we have considered the author and perfecter of faith, Jesus Christ himself, the mighty Savior, the heavenly husband, consider then God's providential purpose And suffering. I mean, I've laid into it a little bit on a cosmic level, but let's get down into the dirt. Let's get down into the trenches. Let's get down into the meat. You. Your personal life. How it affects you. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? In other words, the writer here is leaning in and he's saying, I want you to remember something that you have obviously forgotten. I want you to remember it. Remember that you are a son of God and sons of God bleed. And they bleed precisely because God wants them to. Not because an accident happened. Not because some unforeseen circumstance popped up. Do you believe that? Do you believe that whatever pain finds you, that that was God's doing? Do you have a theology that big? You should. Or... Do you wrestle and wrangle with God and refuse to be comforted by that truth? Because we can respond to that a couple different ways. We can say the Bible would never say such a thing. I just re- I'm about to read to you some stuff that would ma- will make you very uncomfortable if you want to wrestle and wrangle with the truth. ah! Uh, but those who are keyed in, they love it, they cherish it, they understand it. They can't live life not contemplating it, considering it. Now, granted, I'm younger than quite a few people in this room. And I'm sure the accusation could be logged. You don't understand suffering. I get it a little. I've been to war. I've seen things. I've experienced my own tragedies. But you're right. You've experienced suffering and maybe more. but the theology is the same. The Bible tells me what's true. And no matter what it is, no matter if it's a diagnosis, where there is no hope in sight, earthly speaking, whether it's betrayal, whether it's war, whether it's anything, God is behind it. God is behind it. Look, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. By the way, you will notice if you're using the New American Standard or if you're using the Legacy Standard Bible, which is what we preach from generally, these are all in caps. This is a quotation from the Old Testament. This is God's truth from beginning to end. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't act like it's not a big deal. Listen, this is happening for a reason. Nor faint when you are reproved by him. Don't be weak. Don't faint. Consider him. For those whom the Lord loves. Not those who he hates. And who does he hate? Psalm chapter 5. We've been over this. He hates all who. Who commit evil. For those whom he loves. For those whom he has saved. For those who he is sanctifying. For those whom he is for. He disciplines. And here is, gosh, this just verse punches you in the stomach. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. God deals with you as with sons. Sons. For what son is there from his fa- uh, for whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Here's the uncomfortable truth continued. If you don't suffer, if you don't bleed, if you haven't been scourged by the Lord's fiery furnace, you're not a Christian. You're not His. Suffering is the mark of a Christian life. Suffering is the mark of a Christian life. And we know this from other scriptures. Romans chapter 1. We need to start thinking about judgment differently. Oftentimes we think about judgment as God showing up and blowing everything up. There are times in redemptive history when he has done that. But Romans 1 makes clear that the way that God usually delivers justice to his people is by giving them what they want. Because what they want is sinful and it will destroy them. So when God is chiseling and molding you and cutting away the the dross. And He's he's, uh, getting rid of the... uh, He's vine dressing, if you will. He's removing from you your sin and your love of the world. Which is the best thing He can do for you. It's the best thing He can do for you. Though it hurts. And if you're parents, you understand this, you have to punish your children even though you don't want to when they do things that are going to harm them. Lacey just told you our in-laws were in town last weekend. And little Shirley, the one who's been sick, uh, she had a one-track mind to go tear down the TV. I mean, I've never seen such commitment. Straight up. I was actually inspired a little bit. I was like, man, if I, if I tackled things with the type of fervency uh, that little Shirley did trying to get this TV, nothing would stand in my way, right? But every time she tried, there was some grown up, eh, don't mess with, don't do that, why? Well, it would fall on her if she did that and it would hurt her very bad. Might even kill her. She's little. TV's big. She thought it was awesome and she wanted it. But sometimes the reward that we see in front of us actually, all the time, the reward that we see in front of us pales in comparison to the heavenly reward that we have in Christ. Do you believe that? Do you love that? Do you cherish that? Because the reality is, Kai. Christ's sheep are like bells. Christ's sheep are like bells. The harder that God hits them, the more beautifully they sing. The more beautifully they sing. The more that you trust God, the more that you love Jesus. And the more that you love Jesus, the better Your soul is nourished. But it's bigger than that. It's not just for you. Remember I said the providential purpose. He says, and I'll skip down here a little bit. Verse 10, he talks about discipline, which he's speaking about discipline in relationship to suffering. Suffering is discipline for the Christian. For the non-Christian, suffering is suffering. And then you die and you go to hell and you suffer some more. But for us, suffering is never for no reason. It's to nourish us, like I've said, in the presence of the Lord Jesus. But it's also this. Look at this. Verse 10. But he disciplines us for our good so that. hmm, Gotta love the so that's in the Bible. (laughs) We may share his holiness. That we might be one with him. Which is why it ends in verse 14. With that, we pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Did you know that you will not see the Lord if you are not holy? We're not being made more holy. Why? Because Jesus is doing that. He's doing that through suffering. He's making you more holy. He's making you more Christian. We suffer like a Christian to be more Christian. That's it. And if we have the right glasses on, then we get it. We get God's purposes. So when you suffer, consider the saints of old. Consider the author and perfecter of faith and consider God's providential purpose and suffering. In closing, I want to leave you with a piece of imagery that I find very helpful. I don't know if you know this or not, but how they used to make Persian rugs is they would have a guy standing on a gigantic ladder and they'd have like three or four guys down at the bottom, and the guy at the top of the ladder is taking all of these strings that other people are handing one another back and forth at the bottom, and he's designing it in a specific type of way so that it would be beautiful. Here's the deal. The guys at the bottom of the Persian rug, they have no idea what this rug is looking like. They're doing their job. They're moving things back and forth. They are trusting that the guy at the top of this Persian rug knows what he's doing, and he's about to produce a rug that's going to make them all rich. The Christian life is like that. God is weaving a tapestry of beauty in your life, in the world, through and for his son. And all we need do is consider him and pass the yarn faithfully. Amen. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much for this chance to gather around your word and to contemplate and consider your Christ. We ask that you would continue to impress these truths upon our hearts and